Greetings, LARP Book Club members and Radio Hour listeners. I'm Boris Streluk, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. And today I'm joined by Lindsay Wright, LARP's Project Manager. It gives me great pleasure and not a little anxiety to speak to the, I choose the word carefully, fiercely talented Taiwanese-American author Kei-Ming Chang. Chang made her debut with the 2018 poetry chapbook, Past Lives, Future Bodies, which she followed up in 2020 with the novel Bestiary. A New York Times book review editor's choice, longlisted for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award, Bestiary is a strikingly imaginative, fable-like tale of three generations of women who immigrate to the United States from Taiwan. Some of Bestiary's motifs, hauntings, queer desire, violence, and unexpected transformation, recur in Chang's 2021 chapbook, Bonehouse, of phantasmagoric spin on Wuthering Heights, and also in the book we're discussing today, a collection of stories titled Gods of Want, Out with One World This Summer. The sheer inventiveness of these stories, both at the level of imagery and of language, as well as Chang's cutting humor, are what give me that dose of anxiety. Frankly, I'm a bit intimidated, but not too intimidated to express my admiration and to ask a few questions. Thank you for joining us, Kaming. Thank you so much for that introduction. That was so beautiful. I'm very moved. Oh, <laughs> Thank <well>. you. <laughs> now I'm less intimidated. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, you know, as I said, these are really inventive stories, dazzlingly varied. It's really hard to know where to begin. They've been described as fabular, as containing elements of magical realism, like your other work, and that's all true. But to me, they seem perfectly original. I know, though, that you employed Wuthering Heights as a model for your chapbook. And the very first story in this collection, Auntland, or Antland, that all depends on where you're from, begins with a scene that immediately called to mind, or at least to my mind, Nikolai Gogol's The Nose, in which a nose goes missing and kind of disappears from the narrative and then reappears in miraculous ways. Except in this case, there was a tongue. Are there authors you look to for inspiration? And who got you going at an early age? Who gave you the impetus to start writing? Definitely. I think I'm so inspired constantly by everything that I read and also by oral forms of storytelling as well. I think I grew up surrounded by myth and folklore and storytelling that was very embodied and very theatrical and performed in some way. And I think coming from a poetry background, that is also influential as well with that first story. I thought a lot about like the litany form in poetry, repetition and accumulation throughout all the stories. The very first short story I ever wrote is actually Meals for Mourners, which is the last story in this book, which I find really funny because it was how the collection began. <laughs> but now it's the last story in the book. And that was inspired by a short story by Dorothy Allison called A River of Names, which is in her collection Trash. And I remember thinking that that collection was so wild. It was like erotica next to family sagas, next to this really formally inventive storytelling. And it was just this feeling that the form could encompass everything and that it, the stories could be so kind of thematically resonant, but like tonally and formally really interesting and different. And it could just all be encompassed in one book. And then I think when I was younger, I, I was very influenced, I think, by romance genres. Like I was the kind of person who would go into libraries and just like immediately go to the mass paperback romance section. <laughs> There is a bodice ripper and kind of Harlequin romance element here. Yes, I always hope that people get that kind of feeling because I think that I am deeply informed <laughs> by that feeling. I'm always thinking, okay, like when can I have the sex scene in this story? Like when will that happen? And how do I kind of move to that moment? And also thinking about like writing towards pleasure, not just in 
kind of physical material ways, but the pleasure of the language. I think I learned a lot from things like romances. Yeah. And the elements of the bodice ripper. I love to play with, in some ways, defamiliarizing that language, but also playing with its tropes. I think I'm equally interested in both of those things. I'm glad to have that instinct confirmed. This book is both beautiful and shocking and also incredibly funny. And one of the lines that made me laugh out loud was when one of the characters thinks that because there's always a man on a horse on a romance novel cover, that it's actually a romance between the man and his horse, which actually makes a lot of sense. So, so interesting how you pull in these strands from different genres. I was interested to see that I was looking at your website, that you are at work on a novel and also a novella that is forthcoming. I wonder if you could talk a little about why you switch between genres and what does that flexibility give you? And also, when do you know when you're starting to write something, oh, this is going to be a short story versus a prose poem versus perhaps this is the germ of a novel in progress? Yeah, I love that question because I wish that I wrote with a certain kind of intentionality, but I think that I have a lot of genre restlessness where... I just constantly want to be breaking out of the form that I'm in. And I find that when I'm writing poetry, I want to write in full sentences. And when I'm writing in prose, I don't want to write in full sentences. And I'm like, line breaks in the short story, which there's a short story in here with line breaks of a kind. The hoarder's um, story, which yeah, is the hoarder's wonderful. Story. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm always, no matter what form I'm in, I feel like I'm always like standing and like not looking into the room, but looking out of the room. It always feels that way where I'm in this form and always straining to look at another form or to in some way imitate or bring in that other form. So I think that's part of it. And I think what drives that is this feeling of, I love feeling like a beginner in a form. I love feeling like an amateur. But speaking of feeling intimidated, I think I'm very intimidated <laughs> by thinking of things as like a novel or a short story or as a novella. It really helps me, I think, to feel like I don't know the conventions or that I'm arriving as a stranger to any form that I'm in. It brings, I think, a sense of playfulness and possibility to it. It helps me feel less intimidated. So I find that whenever I finish with something, I'm like, okay, what is the form that's the farthest from this? Or what is the form that I will once again feel like a beginner or find myself feeling like a stranger to this particular form? So I tend to hop a lot because of that. The process of exploration is really what propels you through the writing. Does the language itself do that? Because you do seem to be kind of drunk on language. I can cite so many wonderful usages. One of my favorites was the train kept from hipping into the house by a fence. It's just a wonderful word. So can you talk a little bit about your inspirations in that line? What language do you draw on most? Where do you find these striking terms? Where do they come from for you? Definitely language is what leads me. And the poet Victoria Chang, I recently saw her at the Bay Area Book Festival, and she was saying that she approaches things language first, then ideas. And that unlocked something for me. And I think gave a language to exactly what my process is. And I was like, aha. So I'm not completely wild and in my own territory for doing this. For me, it's definitely language first and everything else follows. Ideas, themes, characters, settings, but it's always the language. It's always the micro unit the word, the sentence, the cadence, commas. <laughs> so I find that language to me is that place of pure playfulness and possibility for me, as I was saying. And I find I can always, it reveals all to me. It's almost like smarter than me and mm -hmm. reveals my subconscious better than I could like possibly try to like mold into narrative. It's almost like beyond my own mind, which I love so much. And 
Yeah, I think the language comes from watching it kind of inventively used in my daily life. I love translations in literature. I love when a sentence feels off kilter in a certain way. I love translating idioms that I hear or thinking about the literal translations of things. Anytime I find that language feels that it's allowed to be inventive, it's allowed to kind of break some rules. And poetry too, I think is a yeah. huge source of inspiration because in poetry, the language can bend and, I don't know, be recalibrated in a way that is really, really liberating, I think. Well, I'm very encouraged as a translator by hearing that. I do want to say that also one of the things that as you mentioned earlier, the orality of your inspirations, that comes through loud and clear. You also listen very closely to spoken language. I love in Hoarders the observation that one of the characters pronounces diabetes to rhyme with athletes, which is just great. And also reveals that kind of you know language coming apart at the seams to find something new speaking through us rather than being spoken. And this leads a little bit into my next question, which is your novel Beastie was described as a kind of immigrant novel, albeit one that turns immigration on its head. Can you tell us whether you're comfortable being described as a writer of the immigrant experience? And what does, let's say, Mandarin, what do other languages mean for you? How do they feed into your identity as a writer? Yeah, it was something that I never really consciously thought about or realized until I noticed how how much I was doing it and how inspired I was by like, for example, keeping a list on my phone of translated idioms and sayings that I loved so much. Like I remember there's one in the book that I included, which is you don't have to eat the pig to know it walks. And I was like, I absolutely, I absolutely have to write this into the book because I love it so much. And I definitely find that it's something that I don't even, it's so ingrained in my writing and so ingrained in thematically what I'm interested in that it feels like, oh yeah, of course. It feels like something that doesn't even necessarily, I feel it always needs to be named in a certain way, but of course I don't mind it. And I'm so honored because I find that my literary lineages are primarily things like queer literature and immigrant literature. And I really love to embrace both of those names and labels because I feel like I've crafted a canon and a sense of lineage for myself from these very, very classic works of, you know, something by Dorothy Allison, as I mentioned before, or Maxine Honkinson's Chinaman was the book that like woke me up. I just thought it was so wild, so experimental. I thought that people didn't give enough credit to her for being super <laughs> experimental. I'm like, this is postmodernism. It's this book. It's Chinaman. It just, it was just so boundless and without limits. And I find that Sometimes when the way people talk about immigrant literature, they mean it as like a narrowing, or they mean it as in a certain kind of familiarity, as in, oh, because it's immigrant literature or immigrant story, I think I know what it is. And there's a kind of like solidification or calcification of that label or term. But what I love most is when I actually read, <laughs> read the literature, it's not this calcified thing. It is so alive and so wild and constantly mutating, which I love. Beautifully put. One thing that I thought was so interesting in this book is the sense of place. And when we feel so rooted in a very particular surreal American space, like the all-you-can-eat buffet, the dollar store, the car wash, the part that takes place in Las Vegas and in a sushi restaurant in the desert, and then other parts feel that they're almost in a mythic space beyond place and time. I was wondering if you could talk a little about what kind of spaces and landscapes you feel attracted to. Yeah, I love that question so much because I think I make a point to, I think there's this 
expectation to like defamiliarize what we see or usually consider as foreign, like be it another language, another country, things like that. But I love, <laughs> I love defamiliarizing dollar stores and these kind of, I don't know, symbols or spaces of Americana, car washes, suburban spaces, because that to me is as strange. And it's like, oh, if you're going to defamiliarize, you might as well do it to everything <laughs> in a certain way. Like you might as well, because all of these are places of, to me, threshold spaces or doorways or portals. I think part of it is the deep pleasure I had in reading as a child, like portal fantasy and this idea that a place is never just this static space. It's always opening up. And also speaking like bodily things is like a sphincter <laughs> to another world. It has this life of its own. And so I think I'm really interested in like these liminal spaces that kind of overlap with memory that are this physical place in the present but the past and the future and other places are constantly entering that space and molding it and shaping it. Yeah. And also things like the water slide, that's a great white shark. Like I went through that water slide as a child. And to me, it was the most natural thing in the world <laughs> to be like entering through a shark's mouth and coming out of its anus. I was like, oh yeah, that's just, that's a very natural, natural journey and something that I delight in. And I think now as an adult, looking back on that experience, I realized like, oh, that was kind of a metaphor. <laughs> there was something really poetic, really surreal about that, especially in thinking about girlhood, thinking about hunger and consumption and desire. So I find that I can revisit these spaces and they become mythical in my memory. And that's something that I'm really interested in exploring. Hello, Radio Hour listeners. I'm Boris Jaluk, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, and I'm here with Kei Ming Chang, author of Gods of Want, a short story collection out with One World this summer. Yeah, it seems to me that that kind of transformation or doubling is one of your core themes or core, perhaps even obsessions, and that being limited is one of your core fears or confined or constrained. Are you a, a traveler? Do you like to see new locales or do you have wanderlust of the imagination? Yeah, that's such an interesting question because I do tell people that I'm such a homebody and I love routine and stability. <laughs> um, so I find in some ways that it's my greatest desire to be able to be unlimited in imagination and to wander in imagination. And it's something that also in some ways resists my true nature. I'm always drawn to something that pushes back against me. Um, and I find that, you know, like the prose form is a way of like containing language or a short story form is a way of containing language. And so I love that feeling of resistance and friction with something. And then when I write poetry, I feel like I want to be super expansive, super verbose. But I feel like poetry has a certain kind of concision or, or not even concision, but like this carefulness and intentionality of language that I'm then pushing against when I want to be really excessive and just have a surplus or a flooding of language. So I find that I have to really, in some ways, push myself to diverge from routine, to be able to turn around and look at something from a different angle to understand or think about my own limits. So it is this kind of interesting tension or opposite that, I, that I'm playing with. Well, these stories are expansive in, in their view of the world and um, in their voices. We have so many different voices. I felt like I was in the thrall of a Greek chorus in some of, in some of the sections. 
and they really propel you through. But I did feel that each word was so carefully and beautifully chosen that you could linger over each sentence. And so it made me wonder about what your editorial process is like. Could you tell us about what, what your process is like? How, how much time and um, are you spending just on the, the word and sentence level? Yeah, I find that I, I spend a really long time on the word and sentence level. And it's really funny because I was told that in order to know when a story is finished, it's when you start playing around with single words, you know that it's time to let it go and to be done with it. And I was like, oh, no, I cannot use that process. <laughs> because if somebody told me that, then, you know, I wouldn't even finish draft. I mean, because tinkering with single words is not for me a sign that the story is finished or done or ready. For me, it's it's still that process of explore, exploration. It's still me finding even thematically what the story is about or where I want to kind of end up in that story. And I also write without paragraph breaks. Usually I tend to write in really long, unbroken chunks of text. And it was something I didn't notice I'd done until I remember the first time I was able to get feedback from a teacher that I had. He actually told me, he was like, oh, do you ever think about using paragraphs? <laughs> and I was like, what? Paragraphs? And so I, I feel like a huge part of my editorial process is thinking about structure and thinking about larger forms than, than the sentence or the line or the word level. So thinking about paragraph breaks and where, where to break within the story and then also zooming back and seeing it structurally. Because I find for me that structure is always the last, last thing for me. Um, it's always like the big, really big scope um, parts of the story that I'm most unsure about. And it was the same with BCRA as well. I knew like very instinctually, it must keep this sentence, must keep this moment, um, this piece of dialogue. It's, it, it feels ready. And then it was thinking about the structure of it as a whole. That for me is always the, the yeah. it's almost like a quilting process that I have to do <laughs> where I know what the pieces are. I just, I, it, it just hasn't revealed itself in, in full yet. Well, you, you very much speak like a formalist uh, in the, with, with a capital F. You talk about defamiliarization, you talk about structure, but of course, these stories aren't just formal experiments. There are real flesh and blood elements here, as well as as well as political themes. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel the relationship is between, let's say, your commitments in life, your commitments as a person, and the things that you want the world to look like, and what you do on the page? Yeah, I think someone once described, or I think um, this review was, I believe in the LA Times uh, by Ilana Massad, who said that the stories in here were queer fantasy. And I find that that word fantasy, I, I cling to really strongly or feel that it really resonates with me. Because I, I find that imagination, imagination is work. And that's not something that I authored. Or, um, and it's something that many, many people have said in abolitionist spaces, for example, that the work of imagining is, it is labor, it is work, it is doing something. So I find that fantasy and imagination is so integral to me to thinking about what could the future be like? What are the possibilities of a community is something that I'm really interested in. Interconnectedness and intergenerational community, especially, is something that I'm really interested in. Yeah, and what it means to have like a capacity to both care for each other and harm each other is also something that I think a lot about in the book. Um, and I always write, it's not something I, I, again, deliberately do, but I think centering women's stories in the matrilineage, especially, is this project that I feel really, really strongly about. And I find that it is the reason I write. It is so inseparable from craft and so inseparable from the act of writing. I, 
to kind of honor uh, matrilineage and very complicated motherly figures and caretakers um, and to think about, yeah, that labor is something that is just really intimately tied, I think, to even the reasons why I write. Thank you very much for that. Speaking of community, I'm really interested in whether you are someone who goes off and writes a story on your own, or if you're a more collaborative writer, I saw that you have a writing group that you have been a part of for a while. And I actually had the great pleasure of having Nicole Counts of One World, your editor, visit the LARB publishing workshop. And she spoke just so highly of the process of working with you and what a pleasure it was. In fact, I think if I can quote her, she said, I never thought I would be so turned on by descriptions of mucus. <laughs> so when I started working with, with K-Mings. So I'm curious about um, what that relationship is like and also um, what kind kinds of community with other writers you um, you deliberately seek out? Yeah, if that's the one takeaway, honestly, I would be so, so proud. <laughs> um, that That is honestly, I can put that as a tagline now as just in my life. But yeah, definitely the writing group is really transformative for me because I realized, oh, I love writing for my friends and I love writing for people who care about the work that I'm doing and me vice versa. Like we, we have this investment in each other that was so beautiful. And again, just, I didn't know it was possible. Um, I think especially because we're told to write, you know, like, oh, write universally, you know, write for as many different people, like write for, write for the world, write for the public. I, I realized I was like, oh, this is the space of love and care that is also really thematically resonant with my own work too. And thinking about community as the people we care for and who care for us. I found that forming that writing group just freed my work up in so many different ways. And it's almost like we could map each other's lives instead of our writing as well, that there was a new intimacy to writing that I had never really felt before in that kind of space. So I do tend to write in isolation and I keep my drafts very close to myself and I'm very, very protective of things that I just don't feel are ready for feedback or need feedback in that stage because I very much want to keep writing a practice for myself, something almost like ritualistic or prayer-like. But then when I do feel, I don't know, like this urgency, this sense of need or want, speaking of gods of want, <laughs> for this piece of writing to join to be a part of a community of writing or to be in conversation with the pieces that inspired it, um, that's when I'll go and, and seek out people like my writing group. And in, in connection with that, do you meet with your writing group in person or is this a more or less a remote kind of group, a network across many places? Yeah, uh, we, we used to meet in New York when we were all living there. And then we have slowly kind of scattered over time. And we now live like in different time zones in different places. And we meet monthly online. But I, what I really love, and I, I'll tell, I tell people this all the time, it's almost like a scavenger hunt now because we don't see each other face to face as often as we used to, but we can find each other in our environments. So, you know, I'll be at a Barnes and Noble and I see someone's book and I'll take a picture and send it to them. And it feels like this, <laughs> feels like this yes. scavenger hunt or someone will see something and take a picture and be like, oh, this is what the sunset looked like. And um, there's just this sense of now we have to look for he each other in, in absence, almost like we have to find each other's presences in our own environments, which is a new, also really interesting and beautiful thing. And, and somehow connected to the pandemic as well, I think, or to the reality of the pandemic. Yes, exactly, exactly. So I imagine that you um, must have started some of these stories before it became 
a collection in your mind. So I'm curious about when, at what point did you start thinking about this, um, not just as a, a series of, of stories, but as part of a whole and where the stories speak to each other? Um, and and how, did you, how did you start to make those divisions in your mind of these three sections? Uh, um, was it mothers, moths, moths and myths? And myths. Other, mothers, myths. myths, and moths, right. Yeah, it's so funny because it's, I think it's back to language revealing all and language just being smarter than I am in my conscious mind because for a long time I had just this pile of stories, a heap of stories that I felt uh, were written at a certain point in my life. And I was like, okay, because they were written like temporally in the same kind of time, they must somehow be you know communicating with each other or neighbors with each other in some way. And I kept taking stories out and putting them in. And we started to work on the stories individually, Nicole Counts and I, and it was actually quite a late stage in the editorial process, like probably far later than I I wished or anyone wished it to be, that I started to think about, okay, I keep taking stories out and putting new ones in, but it, it has been in this like dream haze of not being at all sure why I'm doing things. So I realized, okay, well, the only thing that I feel truly grounded in is language. So why not go back to the micro unit and the, the tiny level of language and see what that could reveal. And I ended up realizing that there were all these repetitive M words throughout the collection. There were the moths, there was a recurring character named Melon and myths and moons, a lot mourners. of mouths, mourners, meals for mourners, a lot of, yeah, mouths. Yeah. A lot of M. And I was like, Oh, it's so funny that like the word for like when something is delicious is just a bunch mm. of M's. <laughs> bunch of M sounds and there's so much consumption and eating. So it's like, aha, language, language first, then ideas. And so I made a list of all these M words. And uh, I think I had probably close to a dozen. And for a while, there were almost five sections. I think there was also moons and mouths. But then I realized, okay, if I just, without thinking, almost like wordplay, like magnetic poetry, just start sorting stories into a few words that are the most resonant, in this case, mothers, myths, and moths, what will happen? And what ended up happening is completely without planning it or intentionally crafting it, each section ended up being almost exact in the number of pages, um, which is how it is in the book now. It's almost, it's very satisfying for me because <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's, if I split it in the book, it's these three perfectly even sections. Um, and I realized, I was like, okay, so this is meant to be at the beginning. And my mom always used to tell me, she would say like, everything that will happen has already happened. You just need to go out and meet it. And I was like, oh, that was the moment where it, it had already happened and organized itself. I just needed to go and meet it. Um, and I just felt like, okay, that's perfect. It's a triptych. Three is such a mythological number in Greek mythology. Everything is in threes, you know, three fates, three theories and something about the triptych like the asymmetry of it, um, I really loved and resonated. So it, it was this very like experimental, <laughs> experimental process of finding those sections. Yes, threes are, are magic numbers. And uh, I'm very glad that you had that fortuitous experience. It, it is very satisfying uh, when that happens. And what your mother said is, is fascinating. And I feel that idea is also, it permeates the book and, and much of your writing. Do you feel comfortable telling us how your mother regards your career and whether she reads your books, whether your family reads uh, what you write and how do they feel about it? Yeah, she's very, very proud of me, um, which is so lovely. And I remember um, not long after B-Siri came out, she looked at me very seriously and I thought, I was like, oh, this is a very serious moment. And she just said, oh, you're the family storyteller now. You're the family historian now. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. And 
So I feel like I've gotten even more like waves of stories. And I feel in some ways that she is now kind of risen to the challenge of like, like she's recently had ideas for like a series of murder mystery novels. And she came up with all the titles and the ideas were so fantastic. Like she, she was like, okay, azaleas are poisonous. And the bees who pollinate the azaleas actually have poisonous honey. And they're in historical documents in Turkey, there are actually like entire armies who have gotten sick from this um, poisonous azalea honey. And I was like, okay, well now I have to write about azaleas and poisonous honey and bees having, you know, this, this like toxic honey after the pollinating these flowers. So I feel like in some way it has, I don't know, it's just the storytelling has continued. And in some ways it's been even more like elevated and heightened, um, which I love so much. That's wonderful. Yeah. And um, I could use your mother too. That would be great to have somebody like that around uh, giving you plots. Well, Kiming, thank you so much for this conversation. Lindsay, if you have any uh, final questions, feel free to ask. Um, I just maybe I just, just a, a final comment, which is that it's wonderful to see all these stories, as you said, matrilineal storytelling coming into your book and this chorus of women's voices of mothers and aunts and cousins who are always hijacking the narrative to tell their own their own crazy myths and stories. Um, so maybe this is the next step in your process is to collaborate with your with your own mother. <laughs> Oh, she would she would eagerly welcome that. Um, she is still to this day. She's advocating for a children's book that I wrote when I was in third grade called <laughs> Hamster in the Ham, which is a retelling of Momotaro about a boy born from a peach, um, which and <laughs> hence why his name is Momotaro. Um, and I my story Hamster in the Ham is about a hamster who's born from a ham. <laughs> the oh. family cuts open the ham and a hamster leaps out and goes on these various adventures. She's still, she still asks me about it. She's like, so how's Hamster in the Ham doing? So when is that, when is that making its debut? Do you need an illustrator? Do you need a translator? <laughs> so we'll see. It's nice that there's someone who is, still remembers all the stories that I, <laughs> I yes. told before because I no longer remember them. So maybe we're probably each other's like history keepers at this point. <laughs> well, I love that. We began and ended with the oral tradition. Thank you very much, Kaming. We, we love these stories and we're very grateful that you let us discuss them. Thank you so much for your questions. They were so thoughtful and so insightful um, and generative. And yeah, I'm just really appreciative to you all for reading with such care um, and generosity. Thank you. We were speaking with Kaming Chang, author of Gods of Want, out with One World Books this summer. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.